0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. Let's uh, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you would uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your Word. We are dependent upon you entirely uh, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask that you would do that, for we ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Uh, Tuesday is the 4th of July. Uh, it's Independence Day uh, in the United States of America. And while I am generally not inclined uh, to let Hallmark uh, set the preaching calendar of the church, um, I believe it's important in our day and age uh, to understand what the Bible has to say, About true freedom. So I'm preaching this text uh, today on this particular occasion. So John chapter 8, we'll pick up in verse 31 and read through to verse 38. This is the word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, "'We are offspring of David and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free?' Jesus answered them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed.'" I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, Three points this morning, uh, four if you want to count to a particular closing application. But uh, first of all, freedom distorted. Secondly, freedom defined. And thirdly, freedom destroyed. So freedom distorted, freedom defined, and freedom destroyed. So as we celebrate Independence Day, how would you define freedom? Seems like a simple enough question. Our whole nation celebrates it um, every 4th of July, and yet we uh, seem increasingly to misunderstand or misdefine what freedom is. So how would you define freedom? Ah, very good, Scott. So Christian freedom is, as Scott has just said, the freedom to obey God, the freedom to live for God, or if you will, the freedom to depend on God. So rather than a declaration of independence, uh, however appropriate that might have been in 1776, for a Christian, we want to have a declaration of dependence, a dependence on God and a dependence on his word. So first of all, freedom distorted, which seems to be increasingly common in our day, in our society. The idea of freedom is that anything goes, Uh, you can believe anything, Uh, you can behave any way you want. Uh, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Nobody can tell me what to do, what to believe, or how to live. And yet, what modern man calls freedom, God calls slavery. Slavery. Look at verse 34 in our text. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. No matter how free people may think they are, apart from Jesus Christ, people are slaves to sin, the power of sin. People are slaves to sin and the tyranny of the devil, as we'll look at momentarily, uh, but they are slaves. And uh, the original Declaration of Independence was not in uh, 1776, rather it was in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve declared for themselves whether God was right or Satan was right. And that led to autonomy, that is, determining right and wrong, truth and error, based on what I think, not on what God says. And if I could just highlight this here, and really worthy of a whole sermon in and of itself, autonomy, that is autonomos, being a self-law, being a law to yourself, determining for yourself what's right and wrong, determining for yourself what is true and false, is the essence of sin. It's what led to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And autonomy is not a good thing, all right? And yet, increasingly, we find that... um, Uh, enshrined in our society. Autonomy is rebellion against God and against all authority. This was enshrined not in the American Revolution, but in the French Revolution. If you are familiar with that historical event, you'll know that the slogans of the French Revolution were fraternité, brotherhood, egalité, equality, and liberté, or Freedom but it was a freedom that was revolutionary. It was a freedom which rejected um, uh, revelation in favor of reason. It was a uh, freedom which rejected authority and in fact led to uh, the slaughter and deaths of many people. Um, It was uh, where man became sovereign and not God, where man's reason was supreme and not God's revelation. That is not freedom according to the Bible, and yet that is the freedom that is increasingly uh, pronounced or proliferated in our society today. That is a distortion of freedom. It is not true freedom. Well, how ought we to define freedom then? Well, we see that in our text in verse 32 and verse 36. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, all right? The key to true freedom is the good news of Jesus Christ, or if you will, the key to true freedom is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no true freedom, all right? Let's be clear about this, all right? The gospel is what brings about freedom. It brings about freedom, as Jesus talks about here, freedom from sin, all right, and freedom to um, serving God or living according to the word of God. One cannot uh, live according to the word of God, um, truly, unless one is born again, unless one is born again. Uh, uh, A disciple of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, someone that he has made new, all right? And the gospel is the key to true freedom. Uh, Satan has taken men captive to do his will. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and the only way to break that bondage to sin and to Satan is to uh, know Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ lived the life, that you and I are unable to live a life of perfect obedience, and he died the death that you and I deserve to die, which is the wages of sin on the cross of Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. All right? So Jesus Christ uh, is the one who alone lived the life of perfect obedience. Jesus Christ is the one who alone paid the penalty for the wages of sin, which is death, in order to free uh, men and women, boys and girls from the thralldom of Satan, who has taken men captive to do his will, uh, and from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin as well. So it is only the gospel that can accomplish that. And the gospel is the key to true freedom. And notice what Jesus says here, all right, as we further define true freedom. True freedom is freedom from and freedom to, all right? It is freedom from sin and the devil, okay? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but the truth will set you free. Look, for example, at Romans chapter 6, which we looked at not long ago, but worth reminding ourselves of what is said there. Romans chapter 6 It's interesting in the uh, opening verses of this chapter, sin is personified, all right? Sin is spoken of as if it were a person. All right? And it talks about it as a cruel taskmaster. All right? And yet we look at verse 17. Thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then the same thing in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in the end eternal life. It was Bob Dylan in his Christian days said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that's exactly echoing what Paul says here. You're a slave one way or the other. You're either a slave to sin and to Satan, or if you turn from sin, right? If you turn from disregarding and disobeying God and turn to Jesus Christ, if you repent... And you put your trust for forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ, all right, then you've been set free from slavery to sin and Satan, but instead you're now serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true freedom. That's true freedom. It is what has led to a cry for freedom throughout Western civilization. Uh, it was the Christian gospel that led to that. Uh, true freedom is always the freedom to serve God. <sighs> Uh, Slavery to sin leads to death. It led to death in uh, Genesis chapter 3. The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And it led to death also, as Paul teaches us, in Romans chapter 6. So true freedom is freedom from sin and Satan. All right, It is freedom from the penalty of sin. It is freedom from the power of sin in order to serve God. And it's freedom to... Obeying uh, God as you were created to be. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus is teaching in our text. The truth of the gospel sets you free free to be a slave or a servant of God, free to obey God, free to serve God, free to depend on God, free to live for God according to His word. Now, Returning to our text in John chapter 8, I'd like to point out a couple of important things which you may have glossed over in a quick reading of the text. First of all, Jesus reverses what would ordinarily be uh, an order that we understand here. He says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free or if you continue in my word, or if you practice my word, if you will, all right? You will know the truth. That's the reverse of how we ordinarily find it, isn't it? First, we say we have to know something in order to do it. Jesus reverses that and says, if you do it, you'll know it. If you think about it, that's true, all right? You can read an operating manual uh, for how to fix a car, All right? And you may know it, but until you do it, until you actually practice doing that, you don't really truly know it the way it is to truly know it. That's what Jesus is saying here. All right? But something more important look at the text. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's possible, Jesus says, to believe in him and not be a true disciple. Now look at the text. Who is Jesus speaking to? To the Jews, verse 31, who had believed in him. Well, who are they? Well, look back at verse 22, all right? So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come well, who are they? Look back at verse 13, all right? So the Pharisees said to him. Jesus is speaking to the religious elite or the religious leaders of his day, and apparently, in some respect, they had believed in Jesus. And yet Jesus says they're not truly his disciples. The truth has not set them free. It's very important to take note of, right, because not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who uh, darkens the doors of a church is a true Christian. Not everybody who warms the pew on a Sunday morning or evening is a true Christian. I believe it was um, our speaker last week, Kevin, who pointed out the difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone personally. I can know a lot about the president of the United States. I can look up historical data. I can look up factual information. I can look up his voting record, one thing or another. I I would say I know President Biden, and yet I've never met him. I don't know what he likes for dinner. I don't know what he eats for breakfast. I don't know how much he sleeps, I, I I don't really know him. What Jesus is saying is there are those who believe in him in some respect. They had heard Jesus teach, they had followed him, and in some respect, they believed in him. And yet, they were not truly his disciples. It's very important when we think about true freedom, right? True freedom comes from actually being set free by Jesus Christ from sin and from Satan. It's not just a matter of believing historical data. It's not just a matter of believing information about Jesus. There, as our preacher last week said, if you remember, there are people who are scholars in the Bible that know the Bible better than you and I will ever know it, and yet there are not Christians. They are not headed for glory. They are not true Christians because they've never entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, to set them free from the tyranny of the devil. As our catechism says, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set me free from the tyranny of the devil and who's fully paid for all my sins. Only then is someone truly a Christian, only then can someone know true freedom. So freedom from sin and Satan and freedom to, all right, freedom to uh, obeying God, following God according to his word, all right? This is very important, all right, Um, to understand what true freedom is because we live in a society that is over increasingly losing a sense of freedom and I mentioned this to you and I thought it important to mention on the occasion of this holiday because it's going to become increasingly difficult to be a Christian in uh, 21st century North America. We are under assault all right Um, and I'll talk about the Supreme Court decisions in a moment, all right? But um, uh, realize that this is going on around the country, all right? Um, there are um, state policy in some parts of our country to shepherd children into gender-affirming care, hormones and mutilation, and not tell parents about it. What's the premise there? This is very important for you that are parents, all right, and have young children, right? In the eyes of the government, your children don't belong to you. Your children belong to the government, and they will do this without you knowing about it in order to protect your children, quote unquote, all right? That is far from freedom. California is close to passing a law that would allow the state to take your children away from you if you do not affirm your children's gender dysphoria. Washington state Establishes a one-on-one medical relationship with all children at age 13, purposely cutting parents out of the loop in order to offer them abortions and gender transitions. Now, there were a couple of decisions by the Supreme Court uh, this week that were vitally important in protecting the freedom to dissent. All right, which is the uh, the case about the Christian website uh, developer, but these freedoms are increasingly being threatened all right? And we need to be aware of that. We need to be on the lookout for this, all right? Um, In our society, we are in danger of losing freedom, as uh, understood by the Bible. However, this is a problem not just out there in society, it's a problem in the church as well, which brings us to the last point, freedom destroyed, all right? Freedom is destroyed in the church, by legalism. Legalism. Now, what do I mean by legalism? Well, we're talking about the Pharisees here in uh, John chapter 8. The Pharisees are the usual target when the charge of legalism is thrown out. Uh, because they were seeking to establish their relationship with God based on their performance, or they were seeking to establish their relationship with God uh, by doing mitzvahs, obeying God's commandments, or uh, earning righteousness by keeping God's commands. That's one form of legalism. There's another form of legalism that's popular in the church, though, and that is putting man's word above God's word. Requiring things or forbidding things that God has never required or forbidden. That also is legalism, right? Maybe you've heard the slogan, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with boys that do, right? Oh, Christians can't drink, Christians can't go to movies, Christians can't smoke cigarettes, Christians can't do A, B, C, D, or F, all right? Sin does not reside in things, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man's heart that makes him unclean. And to require, to require or forbid people to participate or abstain from certain things that God is not required to abstain or required uh, require to participate in is legalism. And this is a problem in the church, All right. <clears throat> When you put man's word above God's word and require or forbid things that God has not required or forbidden, you are no longer free. You are a slave to men. Or licentiousness. The idea that freedom means you can do anything you want. Look at Galatians chapter 5, if you will. Many people distort this, so we should look at it. Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What was the problem in Galatia, in the church at Galatia? They were saying in order to be a Christian you had to be circumcised, all right? The yoke of slavery that people understand by verse 1 is the yoke of the law. Or in Romans chapter 6, it says, You are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are un- you are no longer under law, but under grace. This is antinomian or against law or licentiousness. I have a friend of mine. I believe I told you about this in the past. I have a friend of mine. He's a good brother. He loves the Lord. But he will not, when he preaches, all right, He's a pastor of a church. He will not, when he preaches, say you must, or you have to, or you ought. Because that's law, and we're not under law, we're under grace. It does away with the whole Old Testament law and all the commands in the Bible, all right? You have this even in reform circles. Law says do, gospel says done. I don't know if we've heard these things, all right? That is sheer nonsense, all right? Look at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All right? Um, I'm sorry, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, my friend who says you must not, who will not say you must not, you ought not, you can't, you know, he says, when I ask him, well, what's the law or what are the rules that Christians are to live by if there's no law? It's just love, the law of love, love, love one another. So if I leave my wife and run away with the church secretary, sorry, Liz, (laughs) run away with the church secretary because I love her, is that okay? Does that justify that behavior? When I used to stand outside abortion clinics in Brooklyn and just try to dissuade women from going in to kill their babies, they would, they would tell me that was the loving thing to do rather than bring a child into this cruel, sin-infected, dark, dreary world. It was loving for them to kill their baby. You see, love is meaningless apart from some spine, if you will, or some backbone to give it meaning. <clears throat> you can't do away with commandments, all right? <clears throat> you cannot do away with it. And people are licentious. I've talked to Christians who engage in all kinds of immoral behavior. And when you attempt to correct them, whether they're sleeping with their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whether they're out partying, drugging, drinking, one thing or the other, that immoral behavior is unacceptable for a Christian, they hey, I'm free. I'm free from the law. I can live how I want. Licentiousness, anti-nomianism is the destruction of true freedom. Freedom is always the freedom to obey God, to serve the Lord according to his word. Do not use your freedom as a license for the flesh or for sin, all right? Unless you think this is my particular uh, opinion, the Westminster Confession of Faith, if I can find it here, and I can't find it, has a whole article in the Westminster Confession on Christian freedom. And it talks about Christian freedom is free from the dictates of men. Why? Because Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. No man, no government, no authority has a right to require of me something that God doesn't require or forbid me to do something that um, God doesn't forbid me to do all right? Listen, let me give you a biblical example if this is too abstract. You remember when Peter uh, and the disciples were being persecuted for preaching Christ and they were thrown into jail and then they were let out and they continued to do it and they were beaten for that? What was their response? We must obey God rather than man. They were being forbidden to do something that God required them to do, which was preach the gospel. And they resist, they rejected the authorities in order to obey God. Only God is Lord of the conscience. No human being can forbid me or require me to do something that God has not required or forbidden me to do. All right. Socially, you see freedom destroyed as well. Um, when the God of the Bible is forsaken, all right, then a society is no longer free. We have, uh, and in our day, the danger of a deified state. A state that provides womb-to-tomb security. Now, before anybody says, oh, you're veering into politics. We don't want to hear about politics. Let me. Can I just tell you something to defend what I'm about to say? The Bible is inescapably political. Inescapably. That doesn't mean we preach politics. We're not preaching Republican or Democrat or one thing or the other. But the Bible is inescapably political. Do you remember when they came to Jesus and they said, who whose image is on the coin, and they said Caesar's, what was Jesus' response? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. But Caesar was considered God. So what is Jesus actually saying? He's actually saying something that's a political statement, and something which eventually would result in his crucifixion. He was opposing Caesar, who claimed to be God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, because Caesar is not God. That's a political statement. You remember in Acts, when the disciples said, There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. Well, if you know your history, Ethelbert Stauffer, in his book Christ and the Caesars, um, comments on how that saying was originally common in the Roman Empire of Caesar. That is, there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Caesar, who was considered to be divine. And if you were to be saved, you needed to look to Caesar. And when the apostles said, no, 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 only Jesus can save, they were saying Caesar is not God. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. You'll remember that Jesus was eventually crucified, one, for claiming to be a king before Pilate so the Bible is inescapably political and if you know your Bible history one of the biggest dangers in the history of the Bible is when the state claims to be God you see this with Pharaoh who claimed to be a God in Exodus and they were set free the Israelites were set free you see it in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar when the decree went out, that everybody had to worship and bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, who's claimed to be God. And when we get to the New Testament, it's no different. You see Caesar, who's claiming to be God. And the Christians resisted that. My point is simply that the Bible is inescapably political. Or as Bob Dylan said, it's a political world. You can't escape it. All right? So this is not preaching politics, it's warning that as those who value true freedom, we need to beware in our day of a deified state, a state that claims absolute authority to itself. And if you as a Christian do not bow the knee and buckle to the authority of the state, you'll be thrown in jail. Do you know that in New York state, there is a law now, which will be aided by the recent Supreme Court decision, there is a law now uh, in the halls of legislation, that you can be thrown in jail if you do not agree with transgender ideology in New York State. Now, I'm sounding the alarm here, all right? Not to preach politics, but to have you wake up, all right? Thomas Jefferson said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance more on that in a moment, all right? Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. The government is not. And we must live and we must insist on freedom, true freedom, the freedom to serve God, according to our conscience, according to the teaching of his word, all right, and escape from slavery, whether that slavery is to sin and to Satan or whether that slavery is to the authority of the state or any other authorities. Now, a few points of practical application. What would I encourage you to do? First of all, I would encourage you to think biblically about these things. Think biblically about what true freedom is. Think biblically about the dynamics of the society in which we live, which means that Christian education is, in, is indispensable it 's one of the reasons why we 're setting up or why we 're hoping to set up a Christian school is not only that the faith can be passed on from one generation to the next, every parent desires that his children come to know the Lord, serve the Lord, love the Lord, all right but in order that they are raised to see all of life through the spectacles of Scripture, to take captive every thought, to make it obedient to Christ, to think biblically about all of life, including government, civics, and, and politics. All right. So we need to think biblically. We need to raise our children about uh, as Christians, uh, and we need to have an understanding of our own history as a nation. Look at First Timothy chapter two. Secondly. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I encourage you to pray. Alright? And pray for those in authority. Alright? 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. You be You should be praying... For those who lead us in our government, whether it's our mayor, our governor, or our president, whether it's our elected representatives, all right, more about that in a moment, you should be praying for them. But I want to correct something, and I want you to look at the text to see this is not my opinion. Christians blindly pray for our political leaders no matter what they do. Look at the text. For kings and all who are in high positions, why? What is to be your prayer for people in political life and people in authority? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The prayer for our political leaders is, leave me alone. Leave me alone. To live according to the word of God and according to my conscience. That's the prayer. We don't pray for political leaders who are slaughtering babies and advocating immoral nonsense, whether it's abortion or transgender or homosexual and say, oh, God bless them. God bless them. Lord, we pray for so-and-so. God bless them. You want to pray? Pray God damn them. Yes, imprecatory prayers. Pray that God would remove them from spheres of influence. Pray that God would remove them from power. Pray that God would strip them of the ability to prevent you and me from leading peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. But don't pray nonsense. Oh, God bless so-and-so, even though he's in favor of abortion and millions of unborn babies slaughtered in the womb. Don't pray naively. Pray this way. Pray the biblical way, all right? Thirdly, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. If you're a good student of the Bible, you know that Peter is writing here to a persecuted church that is suffering for the faith. I have you turn to this portion of the Bible because I believe that you and I are going to suffer greater, we're already suffering persecution as Christians, we're going to suffer greater persecution in months and years ahead. And I'm simply alerting you to this fact. I spoke at a couple of conferences recently in Canada, and I mentioned to them, I said, get ready for suffering. When I talk to Christians about suffering, it falls in a category vacuum. Does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. We're fat and lazy as Christians. We need to get ready to suffer. Look at First Peter chapter two, verse 21. Uh, look, suffering, uh, verse 19, suffering unjustly. Unjust, if when you do good, verse 20, and suffer for it, you endure this gracious thing in the sight of God. And look at, look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. You've been called to suffer. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now Listen. Somebody hangs you a noose, you're under no obligation to stick your neck in it. I don't believe in volunteering for martyrdom, all right? So I'm not saying you ought to volunteer for martyrdom. That's not what I'm saying. But Peter is saying, if you're going to live righteous and godly in an age and a society that hates God, hates Jesus, hates his church, you're going to suffer. And to that you've been called. Because Christ left you an example. He suffered. It's the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering before the crown. It's the cross before the ground, the road of suffering before glory. Look at verse um, 9 in chapter 3. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessed to this you were called uh, that you may obtain a blessing. Call to suffer. We often pray for the persecuted church. More Christians have suffered for the faith in the 20th century than have suffered in the previous 19th centuries. And that's because they live under religious or political regimes that will not tolerate Christianity. Now, we're not in that situation yet. But judgment is racing towards us. The decision of the Supreme Court this week with the website developer, if you read it, was a freedom to dissent, that is to dissent. The state can't force you, compel you to uh, promote something you don't personally believe, all right? But that's all it was, was the freedom to dissent. A lot of our freedoms are being jeopardized, all right? And we need to get ready to suffer. Get ready. It's coming all right? It's already here in many respects. Fourthly, Thomas Jefferson said, the price of freedom or the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Be vigilant. And can I say this? Be civilly responsible in the civic realm. Be a good citizen. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Thank be to God. If you're a Christian, if you're covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if your sins have been paid for by his blood, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Thank God for that. But we're also citizens here of the United States. And we have civic responsibilities as good Christians, all right? What am I talking about? Not many of you know, but I voted, I worked as a poll worker this past week in New Rochelle. It was a primary election, Democratic primary in New York. It was also the primary in New York City. You know how many people voted in my precinct? 60 people. I was there from 5 in the morning till almost 10 at night. 60 people. You know what the turnout for primary election in New York was? I think it was about 10%. 4th of July, Declaration of Independence, 1776, people bled and died for the right to vote. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Vote, for heaven's sake, vote. Exercise your civic responsibility. Be up on the issues. Know what in the world is going on. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. If we are not vigilant, we will not be free. And lastly, society will change only when hearts change. We live in a society that loves death. Proverbs 8 says, all those who hate me, God, love death. We love death, we're surrounded by it. We're suicidal as a nation, socially. But the only way to reverse that is for people's hearts to change, which means we need to evangelize people, first and foremost. The most important thing is not being a registered Republican, not being a registered Democrat, not being a registered Libertarian, not being uh, going to political rallies for whomever it is that you go to a political rally for. Do what you like, all right? The most important thing, all right, is to tell people the gospel but it's gonna set them free. It's only the good news of Jesus Christ that will free people from slavery to sin and slavery to Satan. And it's only the gospel which will change hearts to love truth, to love God, to want to live for God, to have a declaration of dependence on God. So please, I encourage you, be involved in the work of evangelism. Talk to Sterling, talk to Fernando, talk to Joel talk to others, say, hey, can I join you? What, how, do we, how, how, can we, how can we better tell people about Jesus Christ so that they will know the freedom that you and I know? Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan. Only then will things change in our society. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for our history as a nation. We thank you that you have in your providence placed us here at this particular point in time. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has set us free from the tyranny of the devil and fully paid for all our sins. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to live out this freedom in every aspect of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.